You're listening to Splainin on Radioactive International. Thank you for tuning in this week. And it's going to be a Splainin Splainin, a departure from our normal program of music. And this week I'm bringing you a panel discussion that I took part in up in Belfast. And uh, that discussion was part of the Belfast Anarchist Book Fair. It was called To the Daring Belongs the Future, Women, Anarchism, Feminism, and Ireland. And I spoke on that panel with uh, Fanula from the WSM, which is the Workers' Solidarity Movement. And it was chaired by Barbara from the Solidarity Federation. And we talked about anarcho-feminism, and I also spoke about the pro-choice movement in Ireland, and I talked a little bit about certain current events in the movement, all while sitting next to a woman in a repeal jumper, which you'll want to know when you're listening, and that's why we're laughing um, at certain points throughout the conversation. Uh, anyways, I had a great time up there. It was quite enjoyable, and I hope that you find this conversation of interest. It's, I think, about a half an hour long, and then I'm going to follow that up with music. And if you have any feedback, feel free to send comments. I would love to hear from you. So without further ado, this is our conversation on women, anarchism, feminism, and Ireland. Okay, so I will just leave it open to our speakers to far away. Yeah. you want to start for now? So I'm going to open with my favourite quote that I think like really describes anarchist feminism. Um, so it says, Women of all classes, races and life circumstances have been on the receiving end of domination too long to want to exchange one set of masters for another. And that's by Carl Ehrlich. Um, so anarchist feminism is massively different from any other kind of feminism. And like there's a lot that they have in common, you know, like that women aren't treated like inferiorly. Um, and that traditional women's work is paid and recognised as work. But where it does differ, one of the few things that it differs is um, we believe that the means dictate the ends. So how you go about creating a feminist society, the way you do that is is going to have a direct impact on where you end up. So um, Audre Lorde put it well whenever she said the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Um, so by that we mean we don't want to use the state to do this because the state's one of the things that's currently upholding society as it stands and all the power structures that go with it. So basically what we want is a hollowing out of the current system and the best way to do that is through a revolution. Another way that we differ from other forms of feminism is we don't want equal share of the power or we don't want a different regime with equal female um, participation. We, ju- we want it completely hollowed out. We want a powerless society, basically. So in order to do this, we need to have accurate theory and practice. So this is where we apply anarchism to, to the black feminist theory of intersectionality. So most people here are going to know what intersectionality means, but it basically means that there's no one oppression stands by itself. It has different forms of oppressions um, supporting it and reinforcing it. So there's there's always the idea in anarchist scenes, especially by the men, that um, you just need to get rid of capitalism and everything else will sort itself out. You know, sexism and racism, it's just a byproduct of capitalism whenever it's not true at all because it was the the idea that there was a biological hierarchy which paved the way for the idea of hierarchy in general, which brought us into capitalism. Um, the problem with intersectionality now is though that people have taken a liberal understanding and approached it, where uh, with the they focus on every single oppression and class is generally left out, um, 
or if class is brought in there, it's a liberal interpretation that basically it leads to this idea of classism, where um, the way you sort it out is basically by being nice to poor people or respecting diversity instead of abolishing capitalism. Um, and it wasn't meant to be used mainly as a way to, you know, win debates on the internet. It was meant to be used as a lens through which we could view oppression. So we could say, okay, this is one kind of oppression and this is another. How do they support each other? And if we can see how they're connected, how to support each other, then we're, we're able to see how we, we can tear it down. So um, common sense really tells us that. It tells us that oppression doesn't act alone, that there's other kinds of doing it. Um, so whenever we are examining these oppressions, we can say there's recurrent things. There's likes of the state, you know, the state sponsors sexism, it sponsors racism, and all the rest of it. Um, you see the role of corporations coming into, you know, with like basically being able to work or not being able to work, or your work not being valued or taken as work. Um, so whenever we take it back, the anarchist theory, it says we don't want to use any of this to create a different society, whereas you'll have the likes of Marxists and Leninists telling you it will use anything you can get, but but that's not what we want to do. Um, we want people to gain control of their own lives, and if we, if we do that via the state, so by contesting in elections, all you're doing is reinforcing this idea that someone else will do it for you, um, that uh, it creates passivity, basically. So how does anarchism then really come into feminism? Um, and this is, this is a really, whenever I was writing this last night, I was like, oh, I always forget things that like uh, I learned like a year ago or whatever, and then I remembered this, and I was like, that's a really good one. Um, but anarchism is basically the idea that we know how best to look after our own situation. And whenever you're talking about feminism, what does that remind you of? Pro-choice stuff, obviously. It's the idea that no, the state it doesn't know what's best for us, we know what's best for us. Um, so we want strong communities, and we, we want those communities to be built on solidarity and mutual aid, so basically looking after each other. Um, and we don't need specialists to come in and do this, we just want the resources to be able to do it and the right to be able to do it. Anarchism is basically a way of organising your life that doesn't involve the state mediating that. It's saying that we can organise it amongst ourselves, we don't need any third parties. Um, we don't want bosses, landlords, banks, um, we don't want any hierarchy really. Um, so in order to get to this stage of society we need to dismantle the current systems that we have and for, feminism, for feminists, if you want to get rid of the patriarchy, if you, if you understand basic intersectionality then you'll know that patriarchy doesn't stand alone. If you want to tear down patriarchy, you need to add capitalism to your hit list, basically. Um, and a any attempts to make capitalism more women-friendly, or, you know, to have, basically make the oppressors more diverse or whatever, it's only going to ensure that oppression and exploitation continues. I, wrote, I woke up in the middle of the night and wrote this down, the importance of building a movement based on direct democracy. Um, we're not going to get anywhere by having one person at the top and a few wee minions and then the rest of us. It needs to be a fully participatory movement where everyone feels valued, where everyone has specific roles that they have to do and um, where no role is worth more or less. Like maybe you'll have someone coordinating that, but that can be rotated and just because you're in charge of coordinating doesn't mean you should necessarily have any more powers. Um, so I'm going to leave it there because I think it's better if people like just talk amongst themselves after Angela's speak um, and then we can maybe flesh it out a bit more. Thanks very much, Angela. Look at that, Angela. It's great. Uh, and that's a really nice introduction to get us all thinking about things. I've already got a few things in my head, you know. Um, so we'll ask Angela if you'd like to... Yeah, it's funny because doing. now what I'm going to talk about is how that works in the real world, really. Yeah. Um, and I had all sorts of notes, and I've just killed my iPad so <laughs> oh, no, by I'm dropping sorry. it. <laughs> so now I'm going to speak off the cuff. But um, like you mentioned, I was part of a publishing collective in Dublin called RAG, and we put out a magazine every year. Everything we did was collaborative, so 
from the the germs of an idea for an article uh, and through the draft process, everything we did was collaborative. But we also, aside from the magazine, we put on events, um, open meetings where anybody could come. Um, and uh, it was very active uh, from, I think, 2003 until about, I think our last issue was put out in 2014 or so. Basically, one of the, the last RAG meetings that we had, we started talking about uh, the pro-choice movement in Ireland and how there seemed to be lots of different groups and nobody was really working together and there wasn't really a, a movement. Um, so we thought, well, how can we get everyone together and start talking about working together? So we, this was, I think, June or July 2011. Uh, we just had, uh, you know, put together a poster and a Facebook event or whatever and we said, people from different pro-choice groups come and we'll have a chat. And that went so well that then we had a, uh, a full day workshop where anyone could come. Uh, we split it up into a morning session and an evening session and we provided lunch and we kind of separated off into different workshops just discussing different aspects of what we might do. Um, that was the first time that the first March for Choice was planned and that happened in September. Um, and we decided we needed like sort of a network. So we created the Irish Ch uh, Choice Network, which you probably never heard of <laughs> because it didn't last very long because we realized, oh no, we need a campaign. So then we started um, hosting, and of course, more meetings um, where we discussed what, what will we be called and what will our ultimate goal be. Um, and how will we work? What will our structure be? And so because a lot of us uh, who were part of this early stages uh, did have an anarchist organizing background, uh, it was very important for us to have a non-hierarchical structure in our group. And ultimately, we did settle on free, safe, and legal as our ultimate goal. Um, and. The way we are structured is um, there are five working groups. There's admin and funding, which does sort of the day-to-day, um, the -day, you know, minding the databases and doing the newsletter, selling the merchandise, um, doing funding applications, and, you know, the, the nitty-gritty kind of tedious stuff. Um, there's politics and lobbying. They do loads of things. They write parallel reports. They also hold trainings. So we did um, sort of a, a, talk, a series of Talk to Your TD trainings where uh, people would come and we do role-playing and we talk about... We've had meetings where we just talk about the basics of how like Irish political system works and how a referendum happens and what would happen after that and how laws get passed and things like that. Um, there's uh, partnerships and outreach which liaises with other groups. So there's obviously loads of other groups that might be have like pro-choice mandates, but they're obviously not for free, safe, and legal, or there are other um, groups uh, outside of the Republic, uh, or different unions and things like that, and they would, um, as well as like um, educational groups and community groups and things like that, they would kind of deal with that. Uh, there's creative and direct action, which I think is now just called actions. Uh, they do the stalls, so in the summertime, uh, you know, we would once or twice a week have a stall out somewhere in Dublin where people could sign our petition or get more information. Um, they also do artistic events, actions. They, you know, they can give a little bit of funding towards artists who want to do something pro-choice related, um, banner drops and things like that. That I know I'm forgetting, uh, forgetting a group. <laughs> Shoot, it'll come to me. Anyways, um, there's a convening group. So there's two co-conveners. They get elected every year as well as a treasurer. There's kind of usually two treasurers that work in tandem and a secretary. And the convening group does not vote. So we have steering group meetings every month. Feeding into the, the steering group are representatives from each of the working groups. Uh, as well as regional groups. So we, uh, ARC also has a lot of regional groups. Um, Alliance for Choice is also counted as a regional group there, up here. Basically the idea is that there's not a, there isn't a 
one voice, there's not one representative. We've trained several people in media training. This is both a benefit and a liability in some ways, the way that we organize. Um, very, well, in the past two years, it's been very important for us as a campaign to try to be as intersectional as we can in our, oh, media and social media, that's the group I'm trying, which is like one of the most important ones. Um, so they would be in charge, obviously, of our all of our social media um, accounts, uh, Facebook, Twitter, I think we're on Snapchat and Instagram now. Every day there's an intersectional post. Uh, if you look at our speakers, especially this year, you know, there's, we try to get a, a migrant voice, uh, a minority voice, uh, that includes um, people with disabilities and other people who would not normally get a platform. Uh, we also have tried to translate our materials into as many languages as we can. We have a, a sign language interpreter at our marches. Um, and basically, this is something we are just constantly thinking about because at our we have this anarcho-feminist background. The challenge that we have is that we must, to get the things that we want, we must work within the existing constructs. We must work within the political system that exists. We must, um, I think one of our biggest challenges is kind of, no matter what we do, being the red-headed stepchild. <laughs> you know, I think it's like the image problem that anarchism always has. You know, where you just are always kind of fighting for this legitimacy because you're also fighting the legitimacy of existing power structures. So um, it's been very interesting. We have we have branding. Our speakers are always very professional and um, you know well presented. At the same time, we always are finding ourselves kind of being written out. So we're the biggest campaign in the country at the moment, but you'll often see events um, that exclude us. And I think it is part of this, um, the way that we're organized. And so from the very fir first few months of the campaign existing, you saw very quickly that there were individuals who could not hang with that kind of structure because they wanted there to be a person. They wanted to be that person and it didn't work. So they, all those people went off and formed their own groups who we work with uh, much to our credit and you know they do great things and not to denigrate them but they could not work within that non-hierarchical structure. It's really interesting to see what's happening right now because um, because things have really taken off and we have the, the repeal jumpers, um, which has been sort of fascinating because there's literally a commodity that has been created. And now we have this, <laughs> it is hilarious in a way to, to watch as the greatest fashion trend of the year being the struggle for reproductive rights. <laughs> like something so horrible is now like, the thing to be wearing, and um, and it it just would really behoove us to take a step back and think about the commodification of the movement and how we're trying, or some of us are trying to create something outside of capitalism, but ironically, it just might be this system that creates the visibility and the destigmatization and discussion that we've always been after. It's really, really frustrating in some ways because you're just like, you know, watching the news and people say, the new, this new movement. <laughs> it's like, well, I've been doing this for like five years. <laughs> and suddenly, it, you know, you're sort of like, okay, you're no longer in control of what is happening because uh, you know there's now all these pop-up groups um, forming so you've got these like repeal uh, meetings that are, are happening.
And I don't know what they do at those meetings, but I do know that if just a fraction of the people who bought repeal jumpers would come to an abortion rights campaign meeting, we'd be in really good shape. <laughs> because what's really ironic is you've got thousands of people walking around with these jumpers, and at the same time, there's actual real work that needs to happen that we don't have enough people to do. So, you know, repeal jumpers, they're great and they're wonderful, and, I, and I'm happy that they were made and are being sold in such great numbers, but they don't create parallel reports. They go, don't go talk to the UN. They don't, you know, deal with the EU. Uh, and they, they don't engage with the, the media in this way that um, has the history. So, like, the person who started the repeal jumpers and she's like hey I don't I don't even want to claim to know anything about anything I just made these jumpers but what she's also said is that she's she has hoped to create a movement that's inclusive that people you know that isn't um, snobby and it's really kind of maddening to hear because we've been trying so hard to create an inclusive movement for 35 quid and that's the other thing I was going to say is the ironic thing about it is the people who we're trying to fight for can't afford these jumpers, you know, so... Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't afford to buy them. Did I have a for it as Yes, yeah. Um, and so it just, it, it's... Um, it creates a false narrative in a way because it seems like, hey, this is this is democratic. Anyone can get one of these. Well, they can't. And also, who? It's very because it is a commodity. It has a target market, and that target market is very specific. Um, it's your white middle class feminist who wants to be seen to be doing something, but doesn't really actually want to do anything. And that's the thing about. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <I'm> so sorry. <laughs> That's the thing about. <laughs> um, but that's the thing about grassroots organizing is it's, it's drudgery, it's thankless, it's uh, a lot of meetings, a lot of uh, writing and you know um, traveling and um, strategizing, and it's much harder than buying a jumper. And so um, it's this very strange uh, double-edged sword because it's giving us one thing, and by the way, they've donated money to us, so it's actually giving us important funds, but on the other hand, we have to think about what it's taking away, and some of that is, well, our ultimate goal being free, safe, and legal. Uh, what happens after repeal? The repeal movement does need to happen, but it also needs to have a, a wider trajectory, and it's really also maddening to uh, read articles in the paper about, you know, these people need to think about what happens next. It's like, yes, they are. If you go to our website, <laughs> you can read about, you know, we've been writing and thinking about these things for years. And so it's, um, it's something that, like, people need to kind of catch up with us on uh, a bit. Um, but it's, it is this strange thing where you're trying to work within capitalism while acknowledging that capitalism is where what's put us here in the first place. So, Anton, thank you very much. And there's, I know there's probably lots of questions people want to ask, and um, I just want to maybe just, you know, you might want to ask something different, but it's just something from both of you said that you, you can see this tension between kind of what should be something we should be looking at, like the um, interconnectedness of different issues, but how that sort of gets sidetracked a bit. You know, people have a tendency to do things like that, so it's not letting that get lost, and I suppose just talking to people a lot more and doing a lot more education stuff kind of maybe will bring those issues back to where, you know, we think people should be focusing. And, um, in defense of the jumper and our lovely guest. <laughs> I understand what you're saying and I understand again there's that tension that something that we are actively trying to dismantle and get rid of is in a weird way 
kind of helping as such. My understanding of the, the t-shirt thermos is that they're a fundraising thing that this person started, right? And that's all to the good. And I appreciate lots of people do things um, for different causes and charities that um, and would fall into your bracket of like an armchair sort of feminist or an armchair activist or whatever. So, um, but lots of people will also, I know, couldn't afford them, right? But they're raising funds to help that particular group. Um, but there are people who will be given this present. Um, <laughs> demanded, that's but also that would like to do stuff and but are not in a position to actually be out there on the street or going places or things like that but can help in that particular way you know so this is just the anthropologist head of me you know yeah oh yeah um so i think whereas i understand and appreciate there is that danger and we have to be careful about that and make sure that it doesn't run away from the campaign and take away from it. We also have to appreciate that there's lots of different reasons that people do things and some of them for very good reasons, you know, as well. Um, but I've said enough. Folks, if you want to ask our speakers, make a comment, ask them anything. How does ARC have funding? Like, is it, if you, all the things that you're talking about, do yeah. like, a lot of those are like full-time jobs, really. Well, that's the crazy thing is that, yeah, there's an incredible amount of work that goes in and actually uh, a lot of the people who do the bulk of the work do have full-time jobs already and are, there's serious burnout problem because there is so much uh, work to be done. This is one thing that's great about the way we operate is that there is a rotating kind of group that, you know, people will kind of burn out and fall away and take some time off and other people you know, either they step in or, or no one does, and sometimes that's been a problem where there's just nobody to do, you know, the work. Uh, for example, I'm supposed to be writing the annual report, and it's taken me like a year because we are having trouble finding people to just write about the stuff that we've done, and there's so much. But because we have that um, rotating kind of crew, it means that uh, it's very confusing for for people to kind of keep track of what we do and who's doing it. It, it means that the legitimacy kind of takes a hit a little bit um, because you don't have like your Alva Smith, you know, for example, who's just always going to be there. She's you know the coalition lady or the action on X, X lady, and you know you're gonna always know who she is. With Ark, it's like depending on the month. Well. Usually the terms go a year or six months. You have a different convener or different a different set of spokespeople, and that is problematic. But it means that we are able to rotate that work. And in terms of funding, our biggest funding source is uh, work we do with the Workers Bear Company. Basically, they run the bars at festivals, and people work the bars and donate the. The wages they would have gotten to our campaign and that's pretty much how it's really funny because there's always these rumors going on with the anti-choice people that we have some kind of billionaire funder <laughs> it's like, really where is he <laughs> send him our way i would totally take a billionaire funder but no we we get most of our money through volunteers over the summer um, and that's a great that's a great thing because it means people can they can work a couple festivals, have you know, see the show, get a couple free pints, and then never do anything else for the campaign. But they've done a huge thing because that's how we're able to send people uh, abroad and to do the very important work that we do. What sort of numbers are you talking about for your groups? I think we tried some groups and like we ended up with this Belfast Tennis Network. Um, so not our people, but not based on any amateur principles. Um, and we ended up with like 10 people in Maitland, and then people dropped out, and then it's just not sustainable. But yeah. yeah, over the course of the past five years, I mean, there have been times when some groups have had two people, you know. But at the moment, um, I'd say on average, in terms of like active working folks, it probably ranges between five and twenty so yeah yeah it is it really is because you'd think there would be a lot more <laughs> yeah 
Um, but this is the problem with like feminist organizing is uh, women have a lot of shit to do. And so what happens is, especially because it's a, a, it's a very young movement, um, people start having kids and they drop off. Um, and that's what happens, you know. Yeah. That's what happens. And I think, I think this brings back to some of the stuff Fanilla said about class and how that gets lost in some of the, the kind of the talk about intersectionality and connections and things. And that's something that you also touched on as well, Angela, that we should be aware of, that not everyone has the resources or the time um, to come out and get involved. So is that something we should be thinking about? About how do you actually... Um, reach people like that and go out to them and get involved with them in their communities on a, in a way that suits what resources they have to get out and about or do, to do things. Yeah. Is to that do something that you know people have thoughts on that we should, you know? We've tried to do that by working with um, different women's health groups. Uh, we yeah. created an education uh, program. Uh, we try to partner with like the anti-racist network or Massey or um, like traveler groups yeah. uh, to to try and build some kind of relationship. And do you find that that's kind of successful? I mean, it's, it's slow going. I know it's a slow process. Yeah, it's, it's not the simplest thing. We're definitely farther along than we were before we started even thinking about it. What we're really talking about is like social transformations and they're never going to happen overnight and it is a thing of just getting your foundations right and building on from there. Yeah, so it's engaging very much in grassroots, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And having a presence and a visibility as much as you can. Yeah. You know, because we say not everybody can come to meetings or pick for sure. <laughs> it's like in relation to what Pluto was saying about not using the tools, but you mentioned that you have a lobbying group. Oh, I, I know. So that is using the tools essentially yeah. here. Yeah. yeah. But if you're talking about changing a law, yeah. that's different from changing society. So, right. You, by changing a law, I suppose in some aspect, in a tiny aspect, you're changing that part of society. But what I meant was in terms of getting rid of capitalism altogether, getting rid of patriarchy. Um, it's, it, it is about hollowing out what we've got and just starting fresh. But like with the case of abortion rights, we can't wait until we have a revolution. People need abortion rights now. Um, and that's when you do have to be slightly pragmatic and expedient. It's a compromise, but people can't wait, you know. Yeah, it, it's a matter of, you know, if there's a, a pressing issue that has to be addressed. You can't just sit back and say, well, I'm not doing that, you know, because... And I actually, I don't, personally, would don't see it as a compromise, because it's an injustice that has to be addressed immediately, and I can't be let to sit, you know, so you, you get involved and you do what you can to get rid of but in order to do that you have to seek a certain uh, amount of legitimacy uh, which is also sometimes really problematic <laughs> um, but it means playing a certain game and being seen a certain way that's like acceptable there's a few good pamphlets there's one on the WSM website called um, Parliament or Democracy and I'll link it to um, at a basic it talks about um, what we've got now which is parliamentary democracy and how that functions and um, talks about the original theory of it, what was sold to us which was meant to make it look really nice and this is going to work and then it shows you how it doesn't work and then it moves on to direct democracy so direct democracy is basically the idea that uh, what we have now, we have representatives so a representative, you vote for them and they go off and ju just because they have your vote, they can do whatever they want. They don't have to actually stick to what they say. Whereas direct democracy focuses on delegates. So delegates can be recalled at any moment if they're not doing their job right. People vote on what they, the message they want the delegate to bring forward. If they feel like the delegate hasn't carried that message effectively, then they're recalled. Um, and someone else goes in their place. So it's fundamentally about get, um, 
making decisions based on democracy and carrying it off. Um, and instead of having one centralised government, which is what we have now, it advocates a federalist approach. So you have different groups and different councils um, where decisions are made based on the needs of certain communities. If you need something, one community articulates that and brings it to the community they need it from. Um, so that's a great pamphlet. It also talks about um, the situation in Spain whenever um, anarchism took over briefly. Um, and it talks about how the situation for women remained more or less unchanged. And that was because, um, in my mind anyway, it was more of a syndicalist approach, which basically means workplace control. And for most women in Spain at the time, their work was in the home, and that wasn't recognised. So yeah, that's a good pamphlet. There's, a, do you have your, the book I got you? <laughs> that one's called Quiet Rumours. It's a bit dated, but um, it, it's a fairly good introduction. Rag has actually stones out there too. Oh yeah, Rag. This is the first chapter, isn't it? One of the things that Rag really tried to do was be very non-academic because I think one thing yeah. <laughs> this is going to sound terrible, but it, it it seems like when you're hanging out with a bunch of anarchists, it very quickly evolves into this sort of. Um, knowledge off you know where it's like I you know it's like a nerd contest thing about who's got the most minute knowledge of whatever <laughs> and it can be very intimidating uh, I find so I think the one thing to remember is that you, it doesn't you don't have to be the most well read or have like read everything that everybody's ever written you just have to understand the basic concept and then view things from that lens. Yeah, that's a good point. It'll be intimidating to find people throwing names and theories at you. That's, you know, it's how you actually sort of go about things when you think about you. I remember when I first started getting involved in anarchist uh, organizing and was very new to it. Um, and talking with people and I was like, wait, so you don't vote. They're like, well we spoil our vote. I'm like, okay. We just <laughs> <laughs> so hard to get my head around. But you know, I'm from America and you better believe I'm voting in this presidential election. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks we can wrap it up if nobody else wants to ask anything and just want to say thanks again to Fanella and Angela and thank very much to all of you for coming in as well. So there you have it. A little bit about anarcho-feminism and the origins of the abortion rights campaign and some thoughts on where it's going and how we might reflect on the direction it's taking. So now we're going to move on to some music for the rest of the show. This is a band that was introduced to me by a friend recently, and they're called Dentist. This song is called Over and Over.
That song was from a band called Let's Eat Grandma, which is really a weird band name, to be honest. The song was Deep Six Textbook. Before that, Julie Duaron, Spill Your Lungs was the name of that song, and we began with Dentist over and over. And this is almost it for the show this week. Thank you so much for listening. And we're ending with Songs Ohio, Captain Badass.
So I-